Well, greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your podcast host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. I teach Old and New Testament as well as biblical interpretation. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. In this podcast today, I want to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Reformed Baptist? I am a Reformed Baptist, and a lot of people that listen to the podcast are Reformed, whether you're Reformed Baptist, or maybe you're Presbyterian, or maybe you're Bible Church, or non-denominational. And I know I have a lot of listeners who are not Reformed, that are more provisionist, or Arminian in their understanding of soteriology. And so in this podcast, I want to just kind of clearly define what does it mean to be a Reformed Baptist, before I ask this question or answer this question, I, I want to give a little bit of background because I think there's so many different um, flavors of ev- evangelicalism on the landscape today. Um, I am a part of a pastor prayer group in my community, and uh, we meet every Wednesday, Lord willing, to pray for one another. Now, three of those pastors have left for various reasons, and so our group has gotten a lot smaller over the past few weeks. But when we all met together, we had um, the pastor at First Baptist Church, the pastor at the Berean Church, which, is, which if you're not familiar with the Berean Church, it's kind of like a Bible church, a more dispensational Bible church. Um, pastor at the Foursquare Church, which is a charismatic denomination, pastor of Assembly of God, which is charismatic, pastor of the Nazarene Church, which is more Arminian, and then the pastor of the Evangelical Free Church. And so all of us love each other. We're good friends. We meet each week for prayer and for encouragement. And we often have very interesting discussions related to theology and practice and how we differ. And so that's just a a great opportunity for me to find out really what other pastors who are different in their theology believe and practice. Even within my own denomination, I am Southern Baptist. We are still a Southern Baptist church. Uh, Just to let you know, we've had many town hall meetings over the past few weeks to discuss um, our involvement as a church in the Southern Baptist Convention. Do we continue to stay in? At what level? Obviously, we're concerned about the progressive liberal drift, especially at the national level, as far as what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. But even within my own denomination, there is a wide variety of different practices and theology and methodology um, that's really kind of interesting. And so within Colorado Baptist, where I am, there are not many Reformed Baptists. And so uh, we are kind of a very, very small minority. And as you look at the theological and evangelical landscape, I'm going to just kind of identify a lot of the different um, practices or theology or, or just the things that I'm seeing out there. Again, this is not a comprehensive list, but this is just kind of my observation. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of pragmatism. And what I mean by pragmatism is we're going to do whatever it takes to reach lost people. This is the more seeker-targeted or the seeker-sensitive movement where you kind of, um, in my opinion, water down the gospel or you don't preach deep expositional sermons. You really try to just do things that work and you're all about attendance and getting people to come. And there's not a lot of focus on theology. It's more how do we make lost people feel comfortable as they come to church. Now there's also a lot of churches that are moving towards egalitarianism, which is mainly this whole idea of having women preach on the Lord's Day morning, women pastors, um, as opposed to complementarianism, which believes that only males should hold the office and function of a pastor and preach on the Lord's Day. You're seeing a lot of topical sermons um, I was just listening to our state convention, the Colorado Baptist Convention. There was a professor there from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he had a good sermon on the difference between a text-driven sermon and a text-centered sermon. And he said a text-centered sermon, you basically spend about 40 minutes talking about everything but the text, and you talk more about yourself and topics Text-driven means that you're tethered to the text. The text drives the sermon, and it's an expositional sermon that focuses on drawing out the meaning and application of the biblical text. You also see some churches that are plagued with legalism. 
You kind of have the uh, independent fundamentalist King James only movement where they tend to be a little bit more legalistic in how you dress and what type of music you listen to and Bible translation. You also have dispensationalism. Even within my own town here, there's been another church that has started off of another church because of the issue of dispensationalism. There's not an agreement among the people of the church. And so some churches are very highly dispensational in their idea of a pre-tribulation rapture that happens. And then there's a literal seven-year tribulation. And then Christ comes back again. The first time it's a secret coming. The second time it's really coming back. And he's going to establish a literal thousand-year reign on planet earth. And so dispensationalism. You also have what I would call revivalism. This is very traditional, probably more so in the South, not so much out here in the West, but this is more the altar call, dim the lights, you know, have an evangelistic emotional appeal at the end of the service for people to walk down and make some type of public uh, declaration of their faith, whether it's walking an aisle or, or having some type of public invitation where everything's more built upon an emotional appeal. A lot of the methods that came from Charles Finney in the 1800s, um, obviously, you know, the, the, the mass crusade movement. But ultimately, what I see when I look around the landscape is a lot of a lack of doctrinal clarity. You really don't know what these churches believe. It's minimalistic in their doctrinal statements. And so when you think about these things that are on the landscape, pragmatism, egalitarianism, topical sermons as opposed to expositional sermons, dispensationalism, revivalism, all of these are antithetical to what it means to be reformed. And I want to clear up some confusion that maybe some of you may have. You can be Calvinistic and not be reformed. You can hold to the five solas of the Reformation and not necessarily be reformed. When you think about the five solas that came out of the Reformation, um, Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to God's glory alone. Now, Scripture alone was regarded as what we call the formal or the main cause of the Reformation, while faith alone was the material cause. Now, what does this mean? The formal cause asks the question, where does the authority for Christianity and our beliefs lie? Does it lie in the scriptures alone or somewhere else? Namely, the authority of the magisterium or the pope or some type of tradition. And so that is the formal cause. The material cause, which was actually the theological debate that really was what the Reformation was more about, was asked a different question. That is, how is a person saved? Are we saved by faith alone? Or are we saved by faith plus something we contribute, such as the sacramental system? And so Scripture alone and faith alone were the two major issues or debates around which the Protestant Reformation emerged. And, and these are two ultimate questions. What's our authority, the scripture alone, and how are we saved by faith alone? Now, you can hold to those and not necessarily be truly reformed in the full sense of the word. Also, you can hold to the five points of Calvinism and not necessarily be reformed in the full sense of the word. So let me give you a couple of examples of this. For example, John Piper is a Calvinist, but I would not consider him reformed. He does not hold to a covenant of works. He has kind of a different view related to um, eternal justification. He's definitely a strong Calvinist, but he would not be considered what I would call reformed in the historical traditional sense of the word. You also think of John MacArthur, wonderful pastor and preacher, but John MacArthur's Calvinistic, but he's dispensational in his eschatology. And really, to be reformed... You can't be a dispensationalist and be reformed. You can be a Calvinist and be a dispensationalist, but not fully reformed. You have others like Matt Chandler or maybe C.J. Mahaney that are Calvinistic, but they hold more to the charismatic movement and believe that the sign gifts are available today as opposed to being a cessationist. So you can be a 
Calvinist and not be reformed. You can hold to the five points of Calvinism as far as how a person is saved and how God saves sinners and not be fully reformed in the historical sense of the word. So then, what are the distinctions of what it means to be a Reformed Baptist? Now, I'm not arguing what it means to be a Reformed Presbyterian or a Reformed Congregationalist. I'm a Reformed Baptist, and so there's going to be some distinctions between what I hold to and what a Presbyterian holds to. Not that much, though. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians have a lot in common. This past weekend at our church, we had a huge missions conference where we brought back all of our missionary partners from around the world for uh, just a concentrated time at our church where we had uh, times of testimony and sharing, and we had a missions fair, and we had just a time of encouragement. And almost all of these partners are Baptists with the exception of one, and that is um, Stephen Atkinson. Uh, Stephen Atkinson's a good friend. He's the North American director of Christian Witness to Israel, and he is an ordained PCA pastor. And he was talking about how there's so much camaraderie between Reformed Baptists and uh, Presbyterians, and that there's not a lot of things that are different between us. Um, Obviously, there are distinctions, especially when it comes to the issue of, of baptism. So let me give you, and this is my list. You may disagree with this list. You may add or subtract to this list. But for the purposes of this podcast, I just want to help you understand, especially our church, our understanding, my understanding of what does it mean to be a Reformed Baptist. And so I think there are seven distinguishing marks of a Reformed Baptist. And so I'm going to list the seven for you, and then we're going to go through them and just um, unpack and talk about them. So we're not going to get a lot into the scripture in this podcast. This is more of an overview of what it means to be a Reformed Baptist. So let me give you the seven right off the bat here, and then we'll go through them each one by one. So, so here are the seven marks of what I think makes a Reformed Baptist. Number one, we are confessional We are confessional, meaning that we hold to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. Number two, we are covenantal, meaning that we hold to the three covenants of the Scripture. That's our framework. Number three, we understand the hermeneutical way to understand and preach the Scriptures is through the redemptive, historical, Christ-centered lens. The historical redemptive. Uh, Oftentimes, this may be called biblical theology. Number four, we understand the law-gospel distinction. The law-gospel distinction. Number five, we generally hold to what's called the regulative principle of worship. Number six, we are elder-led in our polity, but we're also congregationally approved where we are still congregational in our understanding of how the church operates. And then number seven, we believe in regenerate church membership and believer's baptism. Those kind of go hand in hand. So let's unpack these seven distinguishing marks of what it means to be a Reformed Baptist. Okay, Number one, we are confessional. We hold to a confession of faith. Now, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession is the primary, the main confession of Reformed Baptists. Now, the Presbyterians have the Westminster Confession. The Anglicans have the the, the 39 Articles. Uh, You go back to the Savoy Declaration. Uh, But Southern, uh, Southern Baptists hold to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. We hold to the 1689. Now, why is this important? Oftentimes you'll hear statements like this among some evangelicals. No creed but the Bible. We just believe the Bible. There's no creed but the Bible. Well, that in and of itself is a creed because you're making a statement. So it's, it's bare minimalistic. We're just going to believe the Bible. Well, that's great in principle, but you need to give definitions to what you understand the Bible teaches about some very key Issues. What do you believe about the Trinity? Doctrine of justification, eternal security, predestination. You know, many churches have the bare minimum when it comes to doctrinal statements. You go look at some church websites or, you, you know, some people I know, and you, and you look at the doctrinal statements of, of just kind of generic evangelicals. It's amazing how many don't have the clear statement on the Trinity, Very minimalistic on the Trinity. 
Some of them don't have statements about the foreknowledge and omniscience of God. Whether you believe in unconditional election, uh, you know, are you open to open theism, process the- theology? It's amazing, too, how oftentimes on these modern uh, doctrinal statements, they downplay sin. You'll see words like, we're broken, as opposed to biblical categories like, no, we're in rebellion against a holy God. We are lawbreakers. We are depraved. And I'm very surprised at how much, and even the Baptist Faith and Message, 2000, how most doctrinal statements do not address justification by faith alone, which I believe is the bedrock truth of Christianity, one of the most important doctrines, justification by faith alone. Obviously, a lot of them don't address the doctrine of predestination. They may have a very weak statement on perseverance of the saints, probably more of a once saved, always saved mentality. And if you, if you want to know what I believe about this whole idea of once saved, always saved, you can go back and listen to another podcast that I've done recently on the difference between the reform view of perseverance of the saints versus the kind of watered down, once saved, always saved revivalistic understanding. And so... When we hold to a confession, this means that we have guardrails to what we believe. We as a church have corporately come together under this confession, and it guides how we teach, how we preach. We're not just kind of coming up with our own doctrinal statement on the fly. This has stood the test of time over centuries as to what Reformed Baptists have believed, The confessions are careful in their wording. They're well thought out in their theology. They've got scriptural support. And so to be a Reformed Baptist means we hold to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. Now, is a confession on par with the Holy Scriptures? No, we don't believe that at all. The Scriptures alone are the sole authority for faith and practice. They're the inerrant inspired, God-breathed, authoritative words of the living God. Yet, or nevertheless, a confession is a concise summary of what we believe the Scriptures teach about the key doctrines of the faith. Now, in addition to being confessional, and this is kind of underneath this category, we use catechisms to teach our children. You come to our church and you often hear us talk about the Baptist catechism. A lot of people think catechism is mainly for Roman Catholics or that's something that the Lutherans do, but but that's not something Baptists do. We don't catechize. Well, Benjamin Keach came up with the first Baptist catechism. Charles Spurgeon modified that and had his Baptist catechism. And so um, a lot of evangelical churches and, and most Baptist churches don't use a catechism. Here's why we use a catechism. Number one, it teaches the foundations of the faith that go along with our confession of faith. So our catechisms are in line with the 1689. But here's the real issue. We believe, especially at our church, that the parents are the primary disciple makers of their children. It is dads, especially, jobs to shepherd their family in the faith to catechize their children. This is not to be farmed out to the youth pastor or to the professional. You know, a lot of churches are heavily focused on programming. And not against programming. Obviously, we have programs on Wednesday nights, and we have a youth ministry, and we have a children's ministry. But a lot of churches are so focused on hiring the experts, the youth pastor, the children's pastor, that they want to do this awesome program to where the parents aren't encouraged or motivated or even challenged to be the primary disciple makers of their children. And oftentimes, at some of these churches you come to on Sunday mornings, It's segregated to where the children go to their area, the youth go to their area, the adults go to their area, and there's three different services going on for age-graded, and and the family's never together in the worship service. We highly value children being in our worship service so that they can be under the preaching of God's Word. They can hear psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs being sung by the congregation. They can learn. And also, in our worship service, we do the Baptist Catechism every week. We take a question per week. And so... Basically, during our, 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 our welcome time after the announcements, we do the Baptist Catechism. I stand up on Sunday morning. It's up on the screen so everybody can see it. I ask the question, and then I give the answer. Then I ask the question again, and then everybody shouts out the answer. And then we give the scriptural proof, and we read that scripture. And it's just a way to supplement what the parents are doing at home and catechizing their children 
that goes in line with the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. So that's number one. We are confessional. We hold to the 1689. It is our confession of faith. It's not on par with the scripture, obviously, but it is a summary that stood the test of time, robustly written, detailed, thorough, strong, that defines and clarifies where we stand on the major doctrines of the faith. Now let's look at the second the second distinguishing mark. We are covenantal as opposed to dispensational. Okay, in Reformed theology, we hold to three primary covenants. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. Now, there are some nuances in how, especially the difference between Presbyterians and Baptists, how we understand especially the covenant of works and how that works out and, and different things like that. But primarily, in Reformed Baptist theology, we hold to three covenants, and we understand the Scripture in a covenantal framework. Whereas our dispensational brothers and sisters, they often see it in seven dispensations, and there's more of a sharp distinction between the Old Testament and New Testament. They see two plans of salvation. Plan A was for Israel. They were offered the kingdom during the time of Christ, and because they rejected the offer of the kingdom during the time of Christ, God moved to plan B, which was to go to the Gentiles, and now the Gentiles were in the time of the Gentiles, but during the tribulation, God's going to go back to plan A and go back to the Jews, and so there's a sharp distinction between the church and Israel, between the Old Testament and New Testament in this whole dispensational theology. But in Reformed Baptist theology, we understand three primary covenants. First is the covenant of redemption. Now, what's the covenant of redemption? This is a covenant between the Godhead, between the three persons of the Trinity, that happened in eternity past, if you will, that relates to the salvation of God's people. So let me give you the definition from Louis Burkhoff. Again, I love Louis Burkhoff. I think his systematic theology is one of the best. So let me give you Louis Burkhoff's definition. The covenant of redemption may be defined as the agreement between the Father giving the Son as head and redeemer of the elect and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father had given him. Okay, let me give you the 1689, what our confession says. In chapter 7, paragraph 3, it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And then in chapter 8, paragraph 1, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man. I did a podcast on the covenant of redemption many years ago, so you can probably go back on the, the website or through the, the whatever podcast feeder you, you, you get to find that. But basically, the covenant of redemption is related to the doctrine of predestination. It basically says this, God the Father entered into a covenant with Jesus Christ the Son that Jesus would go and represent his people that the Father had given to him. He would die on the cross specifically for them, and he would give his life for the elect. The Father would choose those people unconditionally. Jesus would go save those people on the cross, and then you bring the Holy Spirit into that. The Holy Spirit at a point in time would apply the work of Christ and that um, con- th- that unconditional election to a sinner through regeneration. So it's not necessarily a covenant between God and man, It's a covenant between the three persons of the Trinity to bring about the salvation of God's people through election, through Jesus' dying on the cross, and through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So we understand the covenant of redemption to be God's plan, purpose of saving his elect that happened before the foundation of the world. Second covenant is the covenant of works. This is the first covenant in time. It's been called various terms throughout the years. It could be called the Edenic Covenant or the Adamic Covenant, Covenant of Nature, Covenant of Life, Covenant of Creation, whatever you want to call it. I prefer the Covenant of Works because that's kind of the more historical word. This is the whole idea um, that God enters into a covenant with Adam in the garden with the tree of life, a tree of knowledge of good and evil, that if he were to perpetually and personally obey that command that God gave him, he would earn eternal life for him and his posterity. But since he broke that covenant, he brought sin into the world. 
And so it was a conditional covenant based upon Adam's works or obedience to God's command not to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And, and a few weeks ago, um, I, I'm preaching um, on Wednesday nights through systematic theology, and we're going through the book of Genesis, and I specifically address the covenant of works. So you may want to go back and listen to that. But the Westminster Confession on chapter 7 has a more clearly robust statement on the covenant of works. This is not in the 1689 a second London Baptist Confession. Uh, we don't have this wording in ours, but the Westminster does, and, and, and really the Westminster and the second London Baptist are so close. But let me read this to you from the Westminster, uh, chapter 7. It says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Which brings us to the third covenant, the covenant of grace. Obviously, Adam broke the covenant of works. He did not hold up his end of the bargain. He ate of the tree. He's the federal representative of the human race. He plunged all of us into sin. But in Genesis 3.15, the Lord promises a Messiah, that the, there would be a man that would come to be born of a woman that would crush the head of Satan. And then in Genesis 3.21, you see God killing an animal and clothing Adam and Eve with clothing. And so this is a picture of grace. It's a picture of substitutionary atonement. It's a picture of God overcoming their deadness and sin and their rebellion through his sovereign grace alone. And so we do have a statement about this in the 1689s. So in chapter 7, on God's covenant, let me read to you what our confession says. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they can never attain the reward of life, but by some voluntary condensation on God's part, which he hath pleased to express by way of covenant. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by this fall, it has pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. This is kind of a combination. Uh, the, the 1689 kind of breaks up a little bit of what the Westminster says. And obviously this is revealed to the gospel, the proto-evangelion, which is in Genesis 3.15, the first announcement of the gospel. So Reformed Baptists understand the framework of the scriptures to be covenantal. That God operates in these three distinct covenants. The covenant of redemption that happened before time. The covenant of works in the garden between God and Adam. And then the covenant of grace that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now there's recapitulations of these different covenants throughout the scriptures. But ultimately, Reformed Baptists understand we, we would be covenant theologians as, a, as, a, as opposed to dispensational in our theology. And number three is related to this. We, we understand the scriptures, again, in covenant, but also, number three, we have a redemptive, historical, Christ-centered hermeneutic. And what I mean by Christ-centered hermeneutic, we really get this from Luke chapter 24 when Jesus is uh, on the road to Emmaus and then he shows up to his disciples there and teaches them. He shows up there and basically teaches them uh, how to interpret the scriptures in Luke 24, 44 through 49. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus here tells his disciples that, that the entire Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, 
Everything is pointing to Jesus, that the entire scripture is pointing to Christ. And so we understand the Old Testament not as just kind of morality tales to tell us to, you know, be like David and conquer your giants or, or be like Joseph and run away from temptation or be like Abraham and have a lot of faith or don't be like Mo- Noah and don't get drunk or, you know, be like Jonah and be a good evangelist. That's not the way we understand the Old Testament. They're not morality tales to tell us how to be better people. Everything is in the context of a redemptive, historical, Christ-centered hermeneutic, which means that when we preach the Old Testament, we are preaching that as it's pointing to Christ. We're trying to find out where is Christ in the Old Testament, in the types and shadows, in the typology, in the analogies, in the temple metaphors, and all the things that we find in the Old Testament. How do you preach the Old Testament Christ-centrically? Everything related to this redemptive historical. In other words, God announced Christ in Genesis 3.15 and all throughout the Old Testament you see this promise of Christ and then you ultimately see the fulfillment in the New Testament. And so this is a little bit different than dispensational theology that tends to make a huge separation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Whereas we would see a huge continuity between the Old and New Testament, this Christ-centered, redemptive, historical hermeneutic. Number four, We understand the law-gospel distinction. This is very, very important in your preaching on Sunday mornings. Let me put it to you in different ways, okay? Let me explain it here. The Bible has what we call indicative verbs. Indicative verbs are verbs that state reality, They state doctrinal truths. They don't call us to do anything, but they announce to us what we're to believe about ourselves and about God. They're called gospel indicatives. Also in the Bible, you have what are called moral imperatives. These these verbs are in the imperative mood, which is the mood of command. These are commands in which we are to obey, something we are to do. And so there are gospel indicatives and there are moral imperatives. In other words, there's law in the Bible that tell us what to do, and there's gospel which announces to us what has been done. Another way of thinking this is sometimes people confuse justification with sanctification. Justification is the one-time declaration whereby God can legally declare you not guilty because of Christ's righteousness being imputed or reckoned to you and your sin being credited or reckoned to Christ, this imputation, this transaction, if you will, that comes through faith alone, God makes this one-time unrepeatable verdict that secures your permanent standing before God as positionally righteous, not guilty. On the other hand, there's sanctification. Sanctification is the process The growing, this fluctuates, this goes up and down. You have some periods of obedience. You have some periods of of backsliding. It's, it's, It's progressive. It's slow. It's incremental. It can change. Some people confuse these categories. In other words, the the, the scriptures that talk a lot about sanctification are more the moral imperatives that tell us what we need to do in order to either grow in Christ or, to, or to, to be right with God. And these things are called moral imperatives. Now, before we're saved, we cannot do them. The purpose of the law before salvation is to crush us and to show us that we are guilty and there's no way possible that we can offer perpetual and personal and perfect obedience to God's law. Once we're saved, God's law is still perfect and the only way we can obey is through the power of the Holy Spirit in us guiding us to obey the law as a rule for living but not for us to be justified whereas justification secures our standing and so when we think about law and gospel you often get this confusion in churches today you know saving faith is a resting or receiving or accepting Christ I often say it like this. It's not the intensity or the amount or the quality of your faith that saves you, but it is the object of your faith, Jesus Christ, who saves you. You can have weak 
trembling faith, but still be justified because Jesus is the object of your faith. He's the one that saves. Faith is merely the instrument by which we attach ourselves to Christ and receive his righteousness. So it's not the amount of our faith, the uh, intensity of our faith, the radical nature of our faith. Saving faith is merely resting and receiving in the promises and in the person of Christ alone, and, and we're resting and receiving him. But we've often confused that. We've kind of confused law and gospel. Instead of just resting and receiving Christ alone as Lord and Savior, we've added these qualifications that are necessary in order for a person to be saved. And you may have heard things like this. Well, you've got to absolutely surrender your life to Christ in order to be saved. Well, that brings up a question. If you're to absolutely surrender your life to Christ, how much is enough? How do you know when you've absolutely surrendered? What happens if you haven't surrendered enough? Does that mean that you're not saved? This is a confusion. Now, yes, once you're saved, once you've been regenerated, are you to live a life of obedience to Christ and to follow his commands and to grow in godliness? Absolutely. But that's not what gets you saved. That comes as a result of your salvation. That only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's never going to be perfect until you get to heaven. So we have these weird statements like, you need to absolutely surrender your life to Christ in order to be saved. And I know what they mean. They're trying to not um, have easy believism, and they're, they're trying not to water down the gospel, but in their attempt to somehow raise the bar in your level to, um, to, to come to Christ, they've actually added something that's not saving faith. They've added almost like a work there. Absolute surrender becomes like how much have you surrendered? Also, you have words like, um, are you desiring God enough? Are you treasuring Jesus? They've added that to saving faith. Well, how much do you have to treasure Jesus to truly be saved? How much do you have to desire him to be saved? Again, we've often replaced faithfulness with faith. And so there's this confusion of law and gospel. Law tells you what you must do in order to be saved. And the law is meant to crush you because you cannot do that. You cannot keep God's law. You cannot obey enough. You cannot obey the Ten Commandments. It is an utter impossibility. And the purpose or the first use of the law is to crush you, to show you that you cannot do it. And so you need the announcement of the gospel of what Christ has done, the beauty of what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection, the free offer of grace. You're not called to do anything to earn that. You're called to rest and receive in what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross. Now, the third use of the law, that's post-salvation, post-conversion. The third use of the law means that the law is still applicable in the life of a Christian, but we are empowered now by the Holy Spirit to fulfill that law, and we do it out of gratitude for what Christ has done in saving us, not as a means to somehow earn our salvation. So a Reformed Baptist has a good understanding between law and gospel. And this comes into play a lot of times um, when, when you see people from different backgrounds. I remember um, every Monday morning I have a men's study that meets at 6 a.m. And over the years we've had different guys be a part of that. And there's, there's one man, he never joined the church, but um, he was part of our Bible study for a while. And he was from a very Arminian legalistic background. And, and he just could not understand what we were talking about because he always felt like he had to do something to keep himself saved. And if he messed up, he'd lost his salvation. And he was never sure if he was saved. He never had assurance of salvation. There, there was always something. He didn't, he didn't think he was radical enough. Uh, there was another guy in our church. He eventually left because of the theology, and he also struggled with the same thing. He didn't know if he was radical enough or if he was surrendered enough or if, if he had done enough, and, and any time he felt like he wasn't on fire for Jesus, he wondered if he wasn't saved. And so you kind of have that revivalistic, Arminian-type theology that talks about your intensity or your radicalness or what are you doing in order to keep yourself saved or get yourself saved. It's not an understanding of law and gospel. Okay, number five is the regulative principle of worship as opposed to the normative principle. Now, let me just explain to you what the regulative principle is. Um, again, I'll, I'll quote from the Westminster Confession here. Um, it's the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men 
or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, the regulative principle of worship means that in the public gathering of the worship service, in the life of the church, we do not do anything that is not directly prescribed by God in the Scriptures. The normative principle, on the other hand, says, and this was the difference between Martin Luther and Calvin, Martin Luther held more to the normative principle, Calvin held more to the regulative principle. The normative principle says, if it's not forbidden by Scripture, you're free to do it. So let me give you an example. In the normative understanding of worship, you can bring in video clips, you can have drama, you can have puppet shows, you can have a dance on stage, uh, you can do uh, vignettes, uh, you can have a Harley Davidson come on stage for sermon illustrations. You can bring in all these things that aren't specifically prescribed in Scripture, but as long as they don't are not forbidden in Scripture, you're free to do them. The regulative principle, on the other hand, says, no, God regulates how we are to worship, and he tells us what elements we are to have in our service. So elements are those aspects of worship that the Scripture commands. For example, the preaching of God's Word, the sacraments, Lord's Supper, baptism, prayers, prayers of confession, calls to worship, the giving of tithes, and offerings, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the, the reading of scripture, those types of things. Now, the circumstances versus the elements, the circumstances are things that are negotiable, like the service times. Do you start at 10? Do you start at 10, 15? Uh, bulletins, screens with words versus hymnals, instruments from the praise team, um, microphones, things, things like that. You need those things to be able to do worship. Now, we in Emmanuel, we hold to what I would call not a strict regulative principle, but more of a modified regulative principle. So let me kind of walk you through what a worship service looks like in Emmanuel. So we start, we have a praise team. So we do sing praise songs and hymns, but we make sure that the songs that we sing are theologically accurate. We do not sing songs from Bethel, or from Hillsong, or from um, other, other places that are, that are bad in theology. Uh, most of our praise songs come from Sovereign Grace, or the Gettys, or, or other sources that are robust in, in theology. But we do have drums, we do have guitar, bass, we have piano, we have singers, um, and so it, it is upbeat. So we open up with an opening song, and then one of our deacons, who's on a rotation, comes up and does the call to worship. This is a scripture reading that is directly tied to um, the sermon I'm preaching. And he calls us to submit under the authority of God's word. And then he does an opening prayer. I then come up and do a welcome to our guest. I welcome them there. I give a few announcements. And then I take us through the Baptist catechism. Then they sing another about two songs and then our elders are on a rotation. They come up and they pray a prayer of confession. This is a scripture that's related to the theme of the morning and in the worship service. And they will read the scripture and they'll walk us through why we need to confess this sin and how we can have the promise of God's forgiveness. And then they will lead in a time of prayer confession. They'll also pray for our offering. Most of our offering is done online through online giving. But we still think it's important to pass the plates as an act of worship. So we do pass the plates during the offering. Then we sing about three more songs that are a little bit slower um, and a little bit more reflective. And then before I get up to preach, I, I, I pray the pastoral prayer. And then I do expository preaching. And then the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then I do a benediction and we have a closing song. Uh, we do not do dance. We do not do skits. We do not do puppet shows. We don't do... Um, you know, all these extra trappings. We're, we're guided by what the scripture teaches in the regulative principle. And a lot of churches pretty much are, are going away from that. They've got everything but those elements. Uh, think about your worship service that you're in right now. How much time is dedicated to public praying? How much prayer? How much reading of scripture? Is it expository preaching? Is there times of confession? 
Uh, think about those elements that are in there. Or is it more of a production? Is it more of a rock concert? Is it more of just a thing geared towards making you feel better and have this experience as opposed to coming before the living God? All right, number six. This is where we differ from the Presbyterians. In our church, we are elder-led not elder ruled and because we're a baptist church we still have congregational polity the congregation is the final court of appeal the congregation is the one who has the ultimate authority now elders are the leaders of the congregation our male elders the spiritual leaders um, and really when you come to that passage of scripture in first timothy five seventeen, and the esv translates it rule let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That word rule is prohistemi. It's a Greek word. It's compound word, pro, before, histemi, stand. It literally means to stand before. It's been transliterated to lead or to preside or to oversee. And historically, the Presbyterians have seen a distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. Um, they say that there are some elders that are called to rule, usually not the paid elders, and then there are the teaching elders, which are like the pastoral staff. Um, John Calvin was the one that kind of promulgated that. But in contrast, Baptists have historically taken the position that all elders must be able to teach, and that 1 Timothy 5.17 makes a distinction between personal giftedness rather than a formal distinction between two classes of elders and so we have an elder-led polity not an elder rule polity but reformed baptist churches do not have a solo pastor that makes all the decisions they don't have a church council made up of all the committee members that gather together um, some Baptist churches have deacon board that acts more like an elder board, but then they don't have deacons that actually serve. So at Emmanuel, we have elders and deacons. The elders, and I'm one of them, I'm the teaching elder, the lead pastor, if you will. The elders are men set apart by God to be the spiritual protectors, leaders, teachers of the flock. Underneath the elders, we have deacons. Deacons serve the congregation. They work alongside the elders, so we can focus our time on preaching and teaching and the overall spiritual health of the church. Deacons do a lot of the benevolence. They do a lot of the stuff related to our building and grounds. They do a lot of stuff related to meals and helping and things like that. But ultimately, we still have an annual business meeting where the church votes on the budget. The church votes on major decisions. It's not an elder-ruled situation where the elders make all the decisions and the congregation is not involved. So a Reformed Baptist church is still Baptistic in its congregational polity, but it's also led by a plurality of godly male elders with deacons serving alongside them. So there's two scriptural offices, elder and deacon, or elder slash pastor and deacon. And then finally, number seven, we believe in regenerate church membership. A lot of churches have lowered the bar with this whole issue. They, they, they have revivalism where you just walk an aisle, you come down, you say a prayer, and then you're automatically in. They may not have a membership class that a person has to go through. They may not even have any type. Of, I've seen a lot of churches that don't even have any type of formal membership. Just whoever wants to show up can show up. There's no church covenant that the people agree to. Uh, so it's really loose in how you accept members. But historically, Baptists have understood regenerate church membership. And what that means, regenerate church membership, is that you must have a credible profession of faith with evidence of regeneration, and then you're baptized by immersion, and then you're admitted into the church. Sadly, in a lot of Southern Baptist churches, we almost function like Presbyterians in that we baptize not infants, but we baptize toddlers and young, and young children. Five, six, seven, or eight children were baptizing. And that's the, that's the highest number of baptisms within Southern Baptist churches is, is children. 
or we're not taking the time to properly vet the candidates that come for membership into our church. We just either you don't have membership, anybody's allowed in, there's no church covenant. So historically, Reformed Baptists have understood that there has to be regenerate church membership. Those that are truly converted are baptized. Those that are truly converted and regenerated are admitted into membership so that those who are truly part of the visible church have had a credible profession of faith. Now, we understand, when I say visible church, we understand that within the, mix, within the congregation that's, that, that you look out there, there's always going to be those pretenders. There's going to be people that, that um, outwardly may look like they're saved, but only inwardly they're not. And, and again, we don't know that. As elders, it's very hard to police a person's heart. All we can go by is the credible profession of faith. Um, and, and the Bible talks a lot about apostasy or what it looks like to fall away if you were never saved in the first place. So those are what I would believe are the seven key distinguishing marks of what it means to be a Reformed Baptist. Number one, we're confessional. We hold to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. That is our guardrail. That's our doctrinal statement. Along with that, we catechize our kids. Number two, we're covenantal. We hold to the covenantal framework of the scripture as opposed to a dispensational model. Number three, we believe in the redemptive, historical, Christ-centered hermeneutic that all of the scriptures point to Christ and that you preach the Old Testament Christocentrically. Number four, we understand the law-gospel distinction. We don't have that confusion. Number Five, we hold to the regulative principle of worship. Number six, we are elder-led with congregational polity. And then number seven, we believe in regenerate church membership. And so hopefully this has been helpful for you to understand your church. Maybe you're not in a fully Reformed Baptist church. Maybe you're in a quasi-Reformed Baptist church. Or maybe you're in a Calvinistic Baptist church. Or maybe you're in a non-denominational like Calvary Chapel or like a community church. And I'm not saying that that's wrong or that's bad. Um, you need to be in the church that God has called you to be in. The, the most important thing for, for me is, we can get so caught up on this whole Reformed Baptist, but in this day and age of progressive Christianity, where churches are just abandoning the faith altogether, to me the most important thing is, does your pastor preach expositionally from the pulpit, and do, does your church hold to the key tenets of the faith, and um, is it solidly biblical, and is the gospel presented, and, and is there strong stances on those issues that the Bible clearly speaks about that our culture really stands against? That's the most important. Then you can dive down and say, you know, I, I want to be a part of a Reformed church and this and that, but um, ultimately the authority and errancy of Scripture and expositional preaching I think is the most important thing. And then you can secondarily look at these other issues related to what it means to be Reformed Baptist. So hopefully this gives you a picture of kind of what our church is like, the flavor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And by the way, if you're ever in Sterling, Colorado, <laughs> I don't know why you would, but if you're ever traveling through, we'd love to have you be our guest. Or if you are a pastor or you're a layperson and you're listening to this and you have questions about elders, we, you know, I've been here at our church for 17 and a half years. Uh, what does it look like to be elder-led? How did you, you know, what does it look like to be um, a traditional Southern Baptist church that moved to be reformed? Uh, you know, what, what, what does it look like to, to have help in expository preaching? All these different things. I'd love to be a resource to you. So you can go to seancole.net and find all my contact information, or you can friend me on Facebook, um, or you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'd love to be a resource to help you um, to, to, to be more healthy as a pastor, as a layperson, and that your church would be more healthy. So thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to what it means to be a Reformed Baptist. And until next time, will we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus?